Well, as some of you know or may not know, I have an office here at Grace Church, and in my office there are many different portraits that I have hanging on the wall or resting against the bookcase of different men, and all of them are preachers. They're preachers of God's Word. Uh, some of these photos are likenesses of the Apostle Paul. I also have Martin Luther, John Bunyan, uh, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, and yes, even our own Pastor John MacArthur. All of those portraits are surrounding me, reminding me of their faithfulness for me to be faithful as well. But there's only one portrait that I have two pictures of in my office, one in the early part of his ministry and one in the latter part of his ministry, and that preacher is the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Over the years, I've been privileged to be able to speak about these different men in church history, and each time that I'm asked to do this, I'm quick to pick uh, those men that have influenced me the most. For instance, I've chosen such men as the Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the Man of Granite, J.C. Ryle, and the Chronicle of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. All of those people, those men, and others that I haven't even yet mentioned, I'm quick to choose because these are literally the giants. These are the men who have fashioned the way I think I speak about Scripture. They have modeled for me through their writings and through their biographies, their, their biblical understanding of righteousness, what godly zeal for Christ looks like, and what godly ministry should be as well. Well, such is the case in my life with the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It was back in 1993 when I was asked to lead a Christian men's breakfast that I was given the opportunity to choose a portion of Scripture that I would go through uh, to share with these men, and I chose the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. I had never taken a chunk of Scripture like that to preach through it, and so because it was so demanding, and I only had at that time one commentary on the entire Bible, I asked a man here, a friend of mine, who should I refer to, who should I go to, to understand the Sermon on the Mount? And of course, at the beginning, he directed me to Pastor John MacArthur, his four-volume ser series on the book of Matthew. But then he paused, and he said a name that I'd never heard before. And he said, have you considered David Martin Lloyd-Jones? He directed me to a little bookstore no longer in Los Angeles, it's in Westwood called Lagos. And I went there and I found this commentary helped by one of the people that worked there called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he assured me that though it was very, very good, it was also very, very deep. I remember the cover of that book as if it was yesterday. It has since then been loaned out and now I think is in Texas somewhere. It was black on the bottom, blue on the top, and had a yellow kind of white line crossing the face of it to make it look like a mountain. I remember that because for some reason, when I held that book before I purchased it, I started to feel sick in my stomach. And I didn't know what it was. It felt, the book itself, before I even opened the pages, too weighty for me. It seemed as if it was going to be too academic, too difficult, too technical for me to understand. And then, of course, I started reading. Do you remember the first time that Scripture ever became alive to you? Do you remember the first time that words that suddenly before had seemed kind of distant and, and, and so far away became very close and personal? That is what it felt like for me when I began to read The Doctor. 
Far from his words seeming like an academic treatise flowing from some kind of lofty tower, his words entered my mind like a man speaking to me from his armchair. It was only later that I realized that he had been transcribed by people who had actually been in the audience, taken shorthand to be able that they had the copy of what he had said. They weren't chapters that he had written in some kind of desk, but it was intended instead for it to be a transmission of words that he had said from the pulpit. And that struck me like thunder, that he was explaining theological issues like the social gospel or dispensationalism, and he was doing it in such a way that me, a man who had never gone to seminary at the time, was easily understanding it both intellectually and devotionally. So I asked myself, who is this man, Martin Lloyd-Jones? He has been called by those who knew him the best, a surgeon of the soul. He has been called the greatest man I ever met, a great pillar of the evangelical church, a man whose presence you felt more of the presence of God than any other. It was theologian J.I. Packer who said about him, I have never heard another preacher with so much God about him. Scottish pastor Eric Alexander writes, there is little doubt that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world has seen in the 20th century. Our own pastor, John MacArthur, has written, Martin Lloyd-Jones was without question the finest biblical expositor of the 20th century. In fact, when the final chapter of church history is written, I believe the doctor will stand as one of the greatest preachers of all time. It was newspaper correspondent James Evans who described Lloyd-Jones the first time he ever heard him preach in person. He writes that the doctor was a man of medium stature, his white hands were rather fat and short-fingered. As for his head and features, however, there was nothing fat about those. His pale, thoughtful face, his forehead high and wide, his black, shiny hair, keen eyes, and thin lips often brought to mind the features of the late Welsh writer Sir John Morris Jones. He was a short, slight man with nothing necessarily physically impressive about him, but when he entered the pulpit, it was said that there was such an inexplicable graveness and earnestness and urgency about him. There was in him a blend of reverence and intimacy and adoration and dependence and fluency and simplicity. It was J.I. Packer, again, remembering the first time that he heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach as a young man, that, quote, it was both the planned performance of a magnetic orator and the passionate, compassionate outflow of a man with a message from God that he knew his hearers needed, end quote. So he was a surgeon of the soul. He was one of the greatest preachers of all time. He was a man that had more of a sense of God than any man that one man had ever met. So how do you explain this man named David Martin Lloyd-Jones? My plan this morning, my intention is to take you through uh, a journey and to take you through not just an outline of his life as we begin to look through these things, but more than that, I, I want to look at those influences that influenced this great man and the ideas that shaped him. And I want to know why it was that he was such a man of God. I want to understand today, and at least it is my prayer for you, that you will be struck by the impact of this man that you will be struck by a life knowing that whatever he accomplished, 
in this Christian life, it wasn't for himself. He was amazed at what happened to his own ministry. It was never anything he sought, but rather the real thrust of this man's effect on his hearers and his listeners was the result of his entire world being the result of focusing on the strength and love of Jesus Christ through Scripture. His one grand objective in life was to make Jesus Christ known to a sick and dying world. And the overflow of just that one great objective in his life made him who he was and made you want to know the God that he stood in the presence of more. So before we continue, I think it's important to note just that you know the main resources that I used to, for this time, to study for this time, mostly the two volumes of Martin Lloyd-Jones written by Ian Murray, uh, The First 40 Years and then The Fight of Faith. Those are the most that I've read. I read all of them years ago and then went through vast portions of them to prepare for this message. I also recommend Steve Lawson's book on the passionate preaching of Lloyd-Jones, which was very helpful, very concise. And also, I want to commend to you a two-hour documentary uh, about Martin Lloyd-Jones called Logic on Fire. It's directed by Matthew Robinson which was extremely well done, very edifying, uh, gave me some very helpful insights uh, to, about him by those that knew him the best. Now, to help you this morning, I've broken down the stages of his life into seven areas that are going to help us kind of wrap our arms around him, seven areas of the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones that I think are going to just briefly allow us to understand who this servant of God was and how it was that God fashioned him to be the man that he became. And even though every one of these different areas are a little bit one-sided, some are longer, some are shorter, they don't always have the same balance, by the end I think you're going to come to comprehend why the impact of Martin Lloyd-Jones on so many people can ultimately really only be explained not by his preaching, not by his ministry even, but by his personal and intimate desire to know God in Jesus Christ with his entire being. That is really the key to the man. So with that in mind, let's look at the first area of Lloyd-Jones's life that we need to look at today. And that is number one first, just the childhood of Lloyd-Jones. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at first just the childhood of Lloyd-Jones. He was born in Cardiff, Wales, December 20th, 1899, to Henry and Magdalene Lloyd-Jones, the second son out of three, his oldest brother, Harold, and his younger being Vincent. Interestingly enough, his father was a dairy worker who loved Wales and knew more about really politics than religion. Even though his family eventually moved to a town where there was a statue honoring a man named Daniel Rowland, who was not only a leader in the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Church, but also was attributed to leading a great revival in Wales. The topic of religion in the home of the Lloyd-Joneses really didn't happen. His father was a staunch liberal. He was one who believed more in politics than anything else. Therefore, there wasn't really a turning to God in their lives during Lloyd-Joneses' childhood. There wasn't any conversation at home. There wasn't any uh, discussion about Scripture at all. They were like actually many families in our day, and that is their politics was their theology and politicians were their preachers. That's how they approached their entire life. And though the area had a very strong, in that area of Wales, Calvinistic Welsh Methodist influence, 
Like now, many pastors just assumed that the people in their congregations were Christians, and therefore they didn't need to challenge them concerning their sin. They never tried to address the conscience of the person they were speaking to, and something later would become a matter of conviction for Lloyd-Jones as he grew and came to Christ. A crisis eventually came into the family within the first decade of his life when David, later to be called by his middle name, Martin, at the age of 10, he suffered the loss, the entire family did, of their home by fire. It was a very, very difficult time for them all because it ultimately led also to his father's bankruptcy, which forced them to move out from where they lived to London to look for work. And even though their home was gone, his father's business destroyed, Martin's heart in his early teenage years was not growing towards his love for God. He wasn't growing in terms of dependence or neediness for the Savior. Instead, his heart grew in his love for history. He loved history and he had a keen mind and he started to become a fierce debater among his peers. In fact, his history teacher in school had noticed that the young lad's interest in history was so much so that by the providence of God, one day he planted in this little 14-year-old boy's pocket a history book about the ministry of the Welsh evangelist Howell Harris, a book that combined history with theology, and that began to form in Lloyd-Jones's mind a heart for Christ and what biblical preaching should really look like. Well, ironically, the very week that Lloyd-Jones' family were forced to move to the London area, the English were also forced to a great war, World War I. And as his father used to listen to the clanging of the different politicians encouraging the young men to go to war against Germany, Martin still as a boy remained as he was, listening to political rants, pitying his father for having such deep loyalty to these men. And yet, in spite of this, his own personal love for politics grew and grew and grew, as did his love for science and medicine. And even though not yet a Christian, Martin would go along with his families in those days, and they would attempt to find a church. They would go from town to town looking for churches, even though, again, there was no regeneration in their midst. It was part of the social norm at the time. And so he would visit churches like uh, Charing Cross Chapel, where they eventually landed because they spoke Welsh, and their Lloyd Joneses spoke both English and Welsh. And important to note, however, during this search for churches, he also heard of a pastor by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. He was a pastor that would re-enter into Lloyd-Jones' life a decade later. He heard him preach at Westminster Chapel, the same Westminster Chapel that ironically one day Lloyd-Jones would pastor for almost 30 years. So here we have at this point in this young man's life, a young man who knew hardship, he understood what it was to have his home burned to the ground, his possessions taken. He had to shoulder the burden with, along with his family of financial ruin. He had seen his war, his, his entire world go to war. He held the politics and interest in science and more powerful than religion was his zeal for learning. Now let's look at the next phase of Lloyd-Jones' life, namely going from uh, the beginning of his childhood to now the career of Lloyd-Jones. Number two, the career of Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was quoted as saying once, I was never an adolescent. I was never an adolescent. 
That might seem like a strange thing for a young 16-year-old to say, unless you were Lloyd-Jones and at 16 years of age, you were studying medicine at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, London, one of the most famous institutes for the training of medical doctors in the world. It seems that on his own initiative, unaided by his parents, he had written to several different, several different hospitals for information and made up his own mind to apply to St. Bartholomew's and at only 16 years of age, because of low enrollment during the war, he was accepted. Doctors were in such need during those days that young men who had started their course in medicine, but then joined the army, were sent back from France to resume their studies. And so here he is with an incredible mind, an incredible time in history, October 1916. Lloyd-Jones begins to study for the career of a lifetime before most teenagers today even drive cars. To study at Bart's, which is what they affectionately called uh, the St. Bartholomew's Hospital, it was like being a graduate of Trinity College, Cambridge. It, it was one who acquired a feeling that the membership to this institution, this, this amazing place, set them apart and consequently made them feel as if they were not like other men were, as Murray writes, for this consciousness of effortless superiority permeated around them. Obviously, I did not heard a sermon on being humble. So instead of going to war, these men spent time in morgues. Instead of going to kill men, they studied corpses and evaluated how they were killed. The training there was monstrous. Uh, he was there for 11 years. The first three years was completely just rote memorization. Rote memorization. 15 subjects, chemistry, biology, anatomy among them. After that, he would start being a clerk, whereas where the real education starts. He was assigned to a ward where the clerks would go and do patient examinations starting about 9 a.m. in the morning. And the chiefs, or the, the brilliant ones, the, the ones who were in charge of all of this, then would come in where the clerks were, and they would follow the chiefs around, the clerks would, and they would be peppering the clerks with questions. And they would have questions like, did you see this? Did you notice that about the patient? Uh, they would make their way through the hospital asking, uh, did you notice that his breathing was belabored? Why do you think that is? What would be the cause of that? And then after they made their way through the entire hospital, that's three hours, drilling the clerks, waiting for their defenses, it was the way that you would be developed as a doctor. This is the primary area and arena, think about it, that Lloyd-Jones's mind was fashioned and shaped. It was during this time of him being completely grilled and learning how to think that Martin, who was victim to the great flu epidemic of 1918, a flu that he recovered from, but his dear brother Harold lost his life to. Four years later, he would also lose his father. It was said that it was at that time he understood Edward Burke's verse, what shadows we are and what shadows we pursue. Perhaps it was that point in his life that the zeal for understanding to how to heal patients became even more passionate. And I say that because he became among his peers the master of diagnosis, the master of diagnosis. He became a student who was considered above others who studied with him, a man who longed to find the answers for what ailed the world and then the discernment to seek those answers. It was because of this 
that he was noticed by one of his superiors, a man named Sir Thomas Porter, who at the time was considered a, gen a genius in the world of medicine, and at the time, he was also considered the king's physician, meaning that he was doctor to King Edward VII ever since 1910. Once in 1920, Murray recounts that Porter was on a teaching round with a group of students, and he was examining a patient. And he was asking what was the diagnosis from the different clerks that were around him. And Lloyd-Jones came up with a very surprising judgment based on his ability to feel the patient's spleen. Since there wasn't any way to see the spleen at that time, it had to be done by hands-on operation. And Horner examined the patient and said that he couldn't feel the spleen, but was assured by Lloyd-Jones that his diagnosis was correct. Three days later, it is proven that Lloyd-Jones was right, and because of that, Horder made him junior house assistant, and then house assistant, and then Horder's chief clinical assistant as well. Therefore, and I hope you're kind of catching up with this, Lloyd-Jones ended up working with what, he, what was considered really the sharpest mind that was ever known at Bart's. He began to be given books by Bart, uh, excuse me, and Horder, not only on medicine, but listen, on logic. He was trying to study logic within the medical world. He was given the ability to solve problems that was drilled into him like books like The Principles of Science, a treatise on logic and scientific method. That's the kind of reading he was doing, and that's the kind of hunger that he had. At Bart's, he earned a Bachelor of Medicine, a Bachelor of Surgery, obtaining his MD from London University, and becoming a member of the Royal College of Physicians all the time while he was going through this intensive question and answer process of medical prodigy. It has been said that the character Sherlock Holmes has been fashioned after a medical graduate student from Bart's, which makes one wonder at one particular point what if Sherlock Holmes had become a preacher? What kind of man would he have been? He would have been Martin Lloyd-Jones, but not yet, as we shall see. Now, we've seen the childhood and the career of Lloyd-Jones. Let's take a glimpse into the conversion of Lloyd-Jones, the conversion of Lloyd-Jones. Now, it's important that we keep in mind at this point of his life that even though he was heavily immersed into the world of medicine, at the same time, at the age of 18, he became, listen, the superintendent of the whole Sunday school program at Charing Cross Road. He became the leader of the Sunday school program. It would make sense if you think about it, of course, because to promote a sharp man like that, who had a position, a promising young medical student, the assistant to the physician of the King of England, climbing the ladder of success faster than his peers? Well, of course, you would think he would be the one that should be in charge of training the children for gospel work. The only problem was he wasn't a believer yet. Lloyd-Jones in his book, Preachers and Preaching, is quoted as saying, quote, for many years I thought I was a Christian, when in fact I was not. It was only later that I came to see that I never had been a Christian and became one, but I was a member of a church, and attended my church and its services regularly. More than just attend services, he was known to be fierce in his debates in a Sunday school class. And the one he debated the most was a man named Dr. Tom Phillips, a man who had a really pretty daughter named Bethan who quickly grabbed the doctor's attention. 
Sometimes in these debates in Sunday school between him and Dr. Phillips, they became so excited and so loud that members from other classes would come over and tell them to be quiet because they were disturbing them and they couldn't focus. Lloyd-Jones remembers the arguing was keen and sometimes fierce every Sunday afternoon, and very often he and I were the main speakers. I have argued a lot and with many men during my lifetime, but I can vouch that I have never seen his like from the point of view of debate and the swiftness of his mind. There is nothing better for the sharpening of wits and to help a man to think clearly and orderly than debating, and especially to debate on theological and philosophical topics, end quote. And yet, and yet he still is dead to God. And yet, no matter all of that, no matter his ability to reason and think and debate, even theology, he was unconverted in his soul. One reason particularly was the preachers of his day all treated the hearers of the congregation as believers. They treated the church in proper as believers. Lloyd-Jones remembers Quote, although I heard the best-known preachers in Wales of every denomination during those years, I cannot recall that a single one of them touched my conscience. We used to go to services for enjoyment and eloquence, and if we got these, considered the object of worship had been attained. But it is beyond doubt also true that the majority of the popular preachers did not aim at convicting anybody so much as discussing the subject in a masterly and eloquent manner and having a good time, end quote. Well, interestingly enough, his being drawn to God was not through direct preaching of the Word of God because he didn't have the gospel being preached to him, but rather God began to draw him through what he saw at Bart's. Working so close to Dr. Horder and being given much of the work by him to reclassify case histories, he began to see through his deliberations that all of those in the medical field and all of those who had been treated, all of them were dissatisfied with life dissatisfied regardless of their wealth, dissatisfied regardless of their prestige. Dr. Horner was under the impression that they were all living wrong. He said 70% of the issues that they treated were not medical at all, but were just lifestyle issues. And though he was taught that if you change the man's environment and his conditions that all would be well, that was the working principle, he came under conviction while helping London's poor and working around 1922-1923 that convincingly the great issue that laid before him was not education, it was not housing, it was not medical or psychological, there's something else was wrong. One instance of this was remembered when he came across possibly the greatest pathologist he'd ever known, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, a man who he admired greatly. Now, he thought that this man, who seemed to have everything, who seemed to be the epitome of medicine and everything that he aspired to be in his own life, he one night while he was at Bart's doing his rounds, accidentally came across Dr. Spilsbury sitting alone in a room, sobbing, total despair. And he asked himself, seeing this great man in this dark room by himself, weeping like that, if this great man has everything, what is missing? It was after this one evening when he attended Westminster Chapel 
that Lloyd-Jones had the opportunity to hear a Scot by the name of Dr. John A. Hutton and was so gripped by what he heard that he said, he impressed me with the power of God to change men's lives. He believed in rebirth. He believed in regeneration. And he spoke how God's purposes and acts intervene in people's lives. This is something he had never heard before. This is something that was foreign to him. And again, the preaching was so accustomed to never touching the conscience of the person listening that finally at the age of 23, he began to diagnose himself. He'd be able to take the, the, the skills that he had learned at Bart's and start to look at his own heart. And he realized both from Scripture and his own experience that he was dead to God. He was opposed to God. All of his debating, he would later say, all of his cleverness, all of his hours of argumentation was flowing from a principle of self-interest and self-promotion and was because of his horrid fallenness. In one sermon years later, he said that when he thought of those early years, he was filled with hatred and loathing of himself, thinking about the hours and hours he had wasted in talk that aimed at only one end, and that was to evidence his own depravity. He would say, speaking of his conversion, quote, many people come to listen to the gospel who have been brought up in a religious atmosphere, in religious homes, who have always gone to church and Sunday school, never miss meetings, and yet they may be unregenerate. They need the same salvation as the man who may have come out of the moral gutter. It does not matter. It is the same rate. Religiosity is of no value. Morality does not count. Nothing matters. We are all reduced to the same level because it is by faith, because it is by grace. And then he went on to say, I am a Christian solely and entirely because of the grace of God and not because of anything that I have thought or said or done. He brought me to know that I was dead, dead in trespasses and sins, a slave to the world and the flesh and the devil, that in me dwelleth no good thing, and that I was under the wrath of God and headed for eternal punishment. He brought me to see that the real cause of my troubles and ill, and that all of all men was an evil and fallen nature which hated God and loved sin. My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but I myself am wrong in the very center of my being, end quote. He had come to see, as Murray remembers, that his outward life had been little but just play acting. He didn't have a date. He couldn't point to a particular time, but he knew that once he had been fleeing what he called the hound of hell, the hound of heaven, and now he was fleeing to Jesus Christ. So, so far, we've just seen the childhood, the, the career, the conversion. So now it's time to come to what I might call the calling of Lloyd-Jones, the calling of Lloyd-Jones. Now, by this time in his life, he was age 25, Lloyd-Jones found himself in a very great, very powerful dilemma dilemma that was so intense and so purposeful that it really changed the course of his life. He was now at the point where he had become, think of it, a medical established doctor, a physician, one who had a private practice alongside the office of a man who was the physician to the King of England. He was located on the famous prestigious Harley Street. He located on the most famous uh, place in all of London and was heavily involved with life-altering very important research at Bart's, and he was thought to be, by his peers, the most promising doctor of his generation, 
And yet, he had a tremendous burden to proclaim the message of Christ and had an all-compassionate feeling and desire to make the world know him. So the glaring question before him was, was it right to exchange all that he had been given and all that he had studied for to leave medicine for the ministry? It would be one thing, his friends would say, if he wanted to leave the coal mines for Christ's ministry, that would be a choice that few people would argue with, but to exchange Harley Street for the pulpit seemed, to most people, ridiculous. His own mother, as was said, called it incomprehending, incomprehending of his desire to preach in light of his medical training and practice. I want to mention at this point that Bethan Phillips, the daughter of Dr. Tom Phillips, who he had so forcefully debated, at this time had become his fiance. And that, by the way, was no small feat. She was, according to everyone that I read, a beautiful woman. So much so that she was the loveliest lady in London and had, get this, 27 proposals. 27 proposals. The first was Martin and the 27th was Martin. It's important to know also that she too had gone to train as a doctor. Uh, she went to the university college the exact same day he enrolled in Bart's, she enrolled in university college. So when Dr. Bethan Phillips discovered Martin's desire to preach over his practice, she was thrown too. Everyone was thrown. When she eventually asked him, what should be the answer for people who come up to me and ask me, he can do medicine, we know that, but... Does he know he can preach? Martin immediately replied, tell them I can preach to myself. I know what I want to preach. I believe I will be able to say it, end quote. Yet as confident as that sounds, he still had doubts. He still had massive doubts. And in the midst of the doubts, he began maybe to wonder perhaps, instead of entering the pulpit as he had planned, maybe he should exercise great Christian influence to those higher echelons of men in medicine. He was in a position, few people, especially Christians were in, which was to go to those men who were so influential and to influence them as they were saving lives and researching diseases. Would not that seem to be a more logical, more natural choice for him to make? And though he still had doubts, how could having doubts be a sign of God's calling on his life? Surely, if a man is going to be given over to gospel ministry, the gospel ministry of reconciliation before God, he must be filled, shouldn't he be, with confidence and, and know that the decision is right? So reluctantly, in the beginning, he stayed in medicine. What could compel a man who was making 15,000 pounds a year to consider a pastorate of 350 pounds a year? Now, some people say, interestingly, that he could have done both. He could do what so many pastors do even today. He could have become bivocational. Even the Apostle Paul mended tents. And so instead, for the better part of a year, he struggled with his choice. Should he practice medicine? Should he preach the gospel? Should he practice medicine? Should he preach the gospel? He remembers it was a very great struggle. I literally lost over 20 pounds in weight, struggling, tossing and turning in his mind through the details of what he should do. Though the medical profession was so esteemed and so vital, yet still, 
in his day-to-day work, he kept seeing the reality. 70% of the people were not suffering from medical conditions. Even the great men he attached himself to struggled with themselves. Dr. Horder would take him to dinners with the elite of London's finest physicians, and he'd be dining with them. And as he's dining with them, he would hear their murmurings and their criticisms and their jealousies, and it sickened him. What he saw at the top of life was the vanity of all human greatness, and it killed any ambition he had to even get there. What had he began to see more and more as the days unfolded was the hopelessness of the stares of the people who were in the wards and on the streets and the peace that they needed, the peace that they needed from themselves. This one night, some friends of Lloyd-Jones had invited him, it is said, to a theater on Leicester Square. And though he doesn't remember exactly what the play was about, he did remember that as soon as the play was over, they walked over into the blare and glare of Leicester Square, suddenly seeing a Salvation Army band playing. And some hymns were being played. And Lloyd-Jones, remembering, as soon as he saw the band and heard the hymns, he said, these are my people. These are the people I belong to, and I am going to belong to them. He had been feeling the pull of both worlds, but now he knew what he had to do. He was asked once, how did he know he was called into ministry? And he replied, I I didn't know if I was called, but I knew the message and I knew what needed to be proclaimed. He spoke very rarely of his self when he was in addressing himself, uh, addressing sermons. He didn't like to allude to himself, but he did speak one time about why he left medicine for ministry in a sermon I found. And he said this, If you knew more about the work of a doctor, you would understand. But we spend most of our time rendering fit people to go back to their sin. I saw men on their sick beds. I spoke to them of their immortal souls. They promised great things, and then they got better, and they went back to their old sin. I saw I was helping these men to sin, and I decided that I would do no more of it. I wanted to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is right, he is all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a diseased soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face an eternity of hell. Ah, yes, we have some time to give up those things which are good for that which is best of all, the joy of salvation and the newness of life. So we have seen the childhood of Lloyd-Jones, the career, conversion, calling of Lloyd-Jones. Now, I want to focus on the churches of Lloyd-Jones, the churches of Lloyd-Jones. And I say churches because in his lifetime, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor of two different churches, one in Wales and one in England. I want to speak first to the church of Sandfield. The name of the church at age 26 that he first took was called the Bethlehem Forward Movement Mission but eventually became known as the Forward or Sandfields, referring to the district that the church belonged to. It was again a part of the Calvinistic Methodist Church, later to be called the Presbyterian Church of Wales. Calvinistic was in their theology and Methodist was in their life and practice. Lloyd-Jones always had a great love for Wales. He himself could speak both languages, as I've said. He had read the Calvinistic Methodist Fathers of Wales. He was drawn to the approach of Scripture and to preaching that they exemplified. Sandfields had already had seven 
pastors in its history. One who was an evangelist who had come and gone. There had been a permanent building that had built in 1914, and the membership had grown to 130 people. But sadly, after one minister left to pursue politics of all things, those like him also left, leaving the church in debt and with a broken heart. The town itself was consisted of at least 5,000 men, women, and children living for the most part in very overcrowded, sordid conditions. The town had a slum area that was home to some very, very sad, very poor, bereaved folks, 90% of whom did not go to a place of worship. He very much understood poverty and hunger and the children of Sandfields, knowing that there were hundreds and hundreds of miners and children who lacked clothes and food, and he wanted to do whatever he could do to help. It was there, we are told, in Sandfields that Bethan heard Martin preach for the first time. His wife heard him preach for the first time in his first church, which I think is an amazing expression of her, her faith and love of him. She had never heard him in a pulpit before, but followed a man with his lifetime career change without even blinking an eye after he made his final choice. And his preaching was very, very different than what previously had been offered in Sandfields or anywhere. First, he went to the church. He established the idea of honesty. He says, now this is what I want to ask you. Do not let us be honest. Do let us be honest with one another and never profess to believe more than is actually true to our experience. Let us always, with the help of the Holy Spirit, testify to our belief in full, but never a word more. Our chapels and churches are crowded with people, nearly all of whom take the Lord's Supper without a moment's hesitation and yet without judging harshly or unjustly. Do you imagine for a moment that all those people believe that Christ died for them? If the church of Christ on earth could but get rid of the parasites who only believe that they ought to believe in Christ, she would, I am certain, count once more in the world as she did in her earlier days and as she has always done during times of spiritual awakening. In other words, let us be honest with who we are. Let us be honest with who we are and our spiritual experience. He then preached what it was to be exceptional people. The people of the gospel, he said, the people to whom St. Paul wrote were not exceptional people in any sense to which we are not exceptional. To me, Every Christian is an exceptional man. At least, if a man is not an exceptional man, then he cannot possibly be a true Christian. For remember, a Christian is one who believes in the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, one who has been born again. This is a new creation, has become a son of God and therefore a brother of Christ. Yes, every Christian is an exceptional person. He also spoke, of course, of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, he said, quote, people complain about the dwindling congregation and how the churches are going down. Why are people ceasing to attend places of worship? Well, the answer is perfectly plain. They obviously prefer to be at the seaside, and they feel that they get more benefit there than they do in the chapels and the churches. And what I feel like saying to these trippers is this. If you honestly believe that you derive greater benefit by spending your day in the country or at the seaside, then go there. All I ask of you is to be consistent. When someone dies in your family, do not come to ask the church in which you do not believe to come and bury him. Go to the seaside for your consolation. Thank you. People in Sandfields and others, well, had never heard preaching like that, ever, that aimed at the conscience, aimed for conviction. 
His philosophy of the church was very, very simple. How he wanted to conduct her matters. There would be two Sunday services, 11 a.m., 6 p.m. A prayer meeting every Monday, a midweek service every Wednesday, and then everything else could go away. There's a wonderful story about how there was an area in the church building that the drama society had built a stage for for their productions. And you see the church had given over to the cultural mandate to entertain the townspeople with skits and other dramas. And so when asked what should they do with the stage, now that Lloyd-Jones said that everything other than uh, prayer and preaching must go, he responded by saying, use it for firewood, I suppose. The third Sunday he was there, he spoke of Romans 6.23 saying, it is a gift that is as open to the very worst of man here tonight as it is to the very best, for no one can ever get it because he deserves it. I have met men sometimes who have said to me that they know that they are beyond hope, that they have sunk so far into sin and iniquity that nothing can save them. My reply to them is this, that the gifts of God are infinite gifts and that were you 10 times worse than you are already, God could still save you and do so without realizing that his resources have been called upon. The most respectable sinner in this town tonight has not more claim on it than the worst. And when you both avail yourself of it, you will be doing so on an equal footing. Hold on, my friends. All is not lost. No one is too bad. All are invited. There was a journalist by the name of Sam Jones writing on July 3rd, 1927. And he spoke of this different kind of preaching when he said, quote, I do not crave the reader's pardon for abandoning my usual manner of writing my impression and for giving to the best of my ability as much of the sermon as possible. I do this simply because the sermons in themselves were stirring, because Dr. Lloyd-Jones has something to say, and because they are the words of one who has felt himself forced to speak by a greater than human power. Dr. Lloyd-Jones is a man of great courage and faith. I left the church on Sunday morning wondering, in a state of wonder. His preaching, if you think of it, was extraordinary, really. Especially when you consider he had no contemporary model to follow. Most men in that time in England and in Wales were offering a verse of Scripture only to follow it with a quote of Shakespeare or some ancient philosopher, make some kind of elegant point about the nature of love or kindness or whatever. It was structured, it had artistic uh, eloquence, but it had nothing of power and nothing of the Holy Spirit and nothing of conviction. So when he first arrived, it was interesting to note that since he was a London doctor, this London doctor who had given up his practice to preach the gospel, many people wanted to interview him and take his picture. But Murray remembers that Lloyd-Jones refused any interviews or to even have his picture taken. In fact, this might be a shock, it was another 40 years before he let his picture be taken by the press, only letting his photographs be taken by family. His focus in ministry was never about him. It was never to ever be about him, that the odd circumstances of his coming to Wales. It was always to be about Christ and people's need for Christ. Once during his time in Sandfields, there was word that got out about a coal mine explosion. Many of the miners were killed in the town. And in response to this event, he responded in this way. He said, my dear friends, are you ready for it? 
Are you prepared for anything and everything that may possibly meet you? Is your faith of the type that sees through death for no other is of any value at all? Speaking of the seeker-friendly movement, even of his day, he would say, quote, the world is laughing at the church, laughing at her attempts to be nice and to make people feel at home. My friends, if you feel at home in any church without believing in Jesus Christ as your personal savior, then that church is no church at all, but a place for entertainment or a social club. For the truth of Christianity and the preaching of the gospel should make a church intolerable and uncomfortable to all except those who believe, and even they should go away feeling chastened and humbled, end quote. Again, addressing the media, and the, excuse me, the mania of politics in his age, especially coming from his own background. Lloyd-Jones once said humorously, though I'm sure he didn't mean to make it funny, he said, Quote, many churches these days make a new member sign a pledge of total abstinence from alcoholic liquors. Now, I do not believe in pledges of any sort. If a man tells me he believes in Christ and desires to be a member of the church, I feel I have no right to question him. I take him at his word and leave it to his honor. But there are times when I feel almost like advocating that all members should sign another pledge, and that is a pledge of total abstinence from politics. For I believe it is causing greater harm in our churches than anything else, end quote. Where did he get this kind of clarity? Where did he get this ability to have such conviction in his thinking? Well, largely, just so you know, because of his love for the Puritans and his love especially for Jonathan Edwards. He would be known for saying that, quote, I never go into the country for a change of air and a holiday. I always go instead into the 18th century, end quote. Once he was waiting for a train and decided to go into a secondhand bookstore where he found a two-volume 1834 set of Jonathan Edwards. He bought it for five shillings and literally right there in the store started to devour them. He said, it was certainly true that they helped me more than anything else. He also discovered John Owens. Uh, Richard Baxter, he read his complete Christian directory, which if you have never seen, the Christian directory is a massive tome of questions and answers about the Christian life. Because of that, actually, early in my Christian life, I bought Jonathan Edwards, I bought John Owens, I have Richard Baxter's directory of the Christian life because I wanted to get a peek into the life of this man, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and how he saw God and understood God to the eyes of these other men. His love for Puritans, honestly, is a whole other subject that can consume our time. But I think it's worth your time to read uh, especially the one volume that he wrote on the Puritans. It's worth its weight in gold. He speaks of so many different aspects of this. He speaks about not only the strengths of the Puritans, but also their weaknesses. He talks about how Oliver Cromwell had to struggle with their divisions and how their theology was almost without dis disagreement, but it was the way that they functioned within the church and how they understood church leadership that was their real issue. Banner of Truth Publications, as you all probably know, was really born out of Lloyd-Jones' desire for the Puritans to be read and understood and devoured as well and to be modeled. And that's how he started to model his ministry. There's a story that his daughters later in life talked about where his wife, Bethan, was on a bus in the town and was spoken to a man who was on the bus 
And the man leaned over to her and he said, well, we have heard all about your husband and his preaching, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, but can I ask you, are you a real believer? And then he got off the bus and left, leaving her shaken, wondering if perhaps she wasn't a believer. In her own words, she remembers, quote, I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. I used to listen to him on Sunday morning, and I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I really don't know anything about it. She wished she had been, she says, like a drunken sinner who had repented. She would be envious of those people who were dead in their sins, but now had joy and were alive in Christ because their before was so clear, and now their after was even clearer. One night, she was so unhappy and felt the burden of her sin so intensely that Martin was looking through the books in his library and eventually he found one and said, here, read this. And then gave her a book by John Engel James titled The Anxious Inquirer Directed, which she immediately read and found how wrong it was for her to, in her thinking that her sin could be greater than the merits of Christ's blood. And it was at that point that she became a believer. By this time in his first church, Lloyd-Jones had been preaching all over Wales, and he found that because of his uh, preaching, because of what people loved about him, every time he would preach somewhere, people tried to attach him to whatever their cause was, and he was very, very aware of this. His popularity for preaching gave other people kind of a cue to try to affix themselves to whatever ideology they might have and to promote what they were trying to do instead of promoting Christ crucified. There's an interesting story in that line where the time he first went to North America to preach, he went to a church in Philadelphia. And as he did, he noticed there was a tall man in the congregation who just happened to be there. It was G. Campbell Morgan, the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. He also just happened to be visiting his son in America, and he found out that Lloyd-Jones would be preaching in Philadelphia. And so he went to Philadelphia to hear him. Now, not that you may know, but Martin Lloyd-Jones was very aware that Westminster Chapel at that point was looking for an associate pastor, but he wanted nothing to do with the issue. He didn't even want the opportunity. He was so consumed in his own work. And yet, the moment that he finished preaching in Philadelphia, the first one to come to him, to speak to him, of course, was the tall man, Campbell Morgan. He knew he was going to retire one day. He was 72 years of age. And he was looking for a man who loved the Scripture, who preached the Scripture. And when he had heard Lloyd-Jones and seen what he had seen, he knew that this Welshman was certainly the right man to be his colleague and his successor in 1938. But the offer was not so easy. Uh, the offer was not so easy because in the midst of everything, Lloyd-Jones was also being considered to be the president of a Calvinistic Methodist College in Bala in North Wales, which was also a very important role for him. You think about it. For him to be appointed in Wales to a position where he would have enormous opportunity to mold the whole pulpit in Wales and bring the truth of the gospel to the people in Wales, which he loved so deeply, and to teach their pastors how to preach became a very, very, of course, compelling desire for him. So at first he declined the call to Westminster to be a permanent member of the staff. But as God's will would have it, the, the college turned him down. They were suspicious of many things, and therefore his main supporter on the board had missed the train that 
went to go to support his presidency. And so Westminster Chapel in London, believing they already had their successor, Lloyd-Jones gave him a six-month trial, which ended up being 30 years. Thus, his time in Sandfields came to an end. Then he moved to London again. Now he was with and in the church at Westminster Chapel. Now, Lloyd-Jones' life is so full of ironies, as most of our lives are. And I say that because the very first Sunday, he was scheduled to preach the evening service as an associate pastor in Westminster Chapel was the same Sunday that England entered World War II, September 3rd, 1939. In fact, they had to cancel him from speaking because war and bombings and numbers of London's own were being killed weekly. This is the environment that he found himself as a new pastor in a new church. And the newspapers, again, just like in Sandfields, came to him and they asked him again, why, why, why? Why would a man who was making 15,000 pounds a year, a doctor, turn his back on his profession for what was a measly amount of salary in the church? And over and over again, he had to tell them, because I became more interested in people than their diseases. He now had an opportunity, really, of a lifetime to preach from a pulpit in one of the greatest cities of the world, during one of the greatest crises in the world, the greatest message in the world. And for that, he was profoundly thankful. It was during the war, World War II, that there's a story about a visitor who came to Westminster Chapel to hear this great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, only to find a note on the door that said, due to damage suffered by Nazi bombings, the worship service has been temporarily located to a different hall in another location. He says, when he arrived at the hall, he said a small man in a collar and tie walked almost apologetically to the platform and called the people to worship. I remember thinking that Lloyd-Jones must be ill and his place was taken by one of the office bearers. This man couldn't possibly be the preacher that he had heard of in the papers. Surely this introverted and monotone man who was leading the service probably at the last moment came to stand in. And yet when it came time for the sermon, that same mild man stepped up into the pulpit with quiet demeanor and started the sermon with a quiet voice. He says, quote, then a curious thing happened. From the next 40 minutes, I became completely unconscious of everything except the word this man was speaking. Not his words, mark you, but someone behind them and in them and through them. I didn't realize it then, but I had been in the presence of the mystery of preaching when a man is lost in the message he proclaimed, end quote. That was Martin Lloyd-Jones. That was the essence of who he was from the very beginning. Martin Lloyd-Jones and C. Campbell Morgan were at Westminster Chapel, joint ministers. And then when Morgan uh, retirement in 1943, then the Westminster Chapel began to grow, and it grew after the war very, very quickly. 1947, the balconies were opened. 1948 to 1968, when he retired, the congregation at Westminster Chapel was on an average 1,500 in the morning on Sunday mornings and 2,000 on Sunday nights. For some reason, Sunday nights was even more attended. Westminster Chapel became literally a preaching center, but Lloyd-Jones fought that. He didn't want that to be only the case. He wanted to keep it a church, and there were core people in that church that made it a church. It was here at Westminster where the doctor began to preach his morning. I want you to be aware of this because I think it's fascinating. Sunday mornings, he would preach first 
through the scripture. October 1950 to 1952, it was the Sermon on the Mount, 60 messages. Then 1952, John 17, he preached 13 messages. Psalm 13 in 1953, he preached 11 messages. Then he went into his very famous uh, series on spiritual depression in 1954, 21 messages. Ephesians was from October 1954 to July 1962, 260 messages. Revival, which consumed him greatly, the theme of it, 1959, 26 sermons. Colossians, 14 sermons. John 1 through 4 was from 1962 to 1968. That was just in the day, in the morning. Sunday evenings, he would then focus on evangelism. He went to Isaiah 40 in 1946, nine sermons. Psalm 107 in 1955, seven sermons. Isaiah 53, six sermons. The Authority of Scripture, three sermons. The Cross from the book of Galatians alone, nine sermons. Psalm 1, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 5, the theme of joy, and the Acts 1 through chapter 5. Over 200 sermons cumulatively. Then Friday nights came. And Friday nights was the night which he called of instruction. And he would instruct them on what was called the great doctrines of the Bible. And you can get that book. It's actually now been released by Crossway. That was from 1952 to 1951 or 55, 81 sermons. And then, of course, his most magnificent piece, the book of Romans from 1957 to 1968, 372 sermons in the book of Romans. Westminster Chapel was his home, and the people cherished him for almost the 30 years before he retired. <clears throat> now, if you're still with me, we've seen the childhood of Lloyd-Jones. We've seen the career and conversion and calling and the churches of Lloyd-Jones. Now, let's just spend a moment talking about the cry of Lloyd-Jones, the cry of Lloyd-Jones. In July 1959, Martin and his wife Bethan were on vacation in Wales, and they attended a little chapel for a Sunday morning prayer meeting, and Lloyd-Jones asked them very meekly, would you like me to give a word this morning? The people, of course, were hesitating because you're on vacation, and they didn't want to presume on his energy, but his wife said, let him. Preaching is his life. His life. It was true. Though Lloyd-Jones was known for saying that he would not cross the street, much less go one mile to hear himself preach, the truth was preaching was his heart. It was his conviction that we need preachers, not teachers. It was his conviction that we need preachers, not teachers. Teachers are those who impart information, but preachers are those who aim for conviction to those that hear who are committed to bring the Bible alive, to try to show people the truth of Scripture and to thrill them with the marvelous gospel the world has ever known. He believed that the preacher should reduce himself to the pattern in the New Testament, both in preaching and praying, and those two items should be his sole focus and his sole aim, and that the Holy Spirit, his great guide and enabler, should be the greatest power and force in his preaching. It's interesting, if a man didn't preach, with competence or reliance on the Holy Spirit, it would be so evident to Lloyd-Jones that he would lean over to his children and say, my, that man was on his own today. I mean, there was no, there was no God in him. This, his message was, of course, expository, and I think we know that in this day. It was almost completely unknown in his day. I say expository just to make it clear that he would take a passage of Scripture, and then he would set on in its context, and he would bring out all of the problems and solutions of every sermon. 
He would argue always from the general to the particular. And then he would never reduce it to some kind of analyzing of words and grammar. Though those things matter to a preacher, he was instead not trying to do anything but to diagnose the passage and give a prescription to the heart. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, I started with the man whom I wanted to listen, the patient, a medical approach really. Here is a patient, a person in trouble, an ignorant man who has been to quacks, and I am going to deal with that in the introduction. I wanted to get the listener to have them come to my exposition. As I said earlier, he rarely referred to himself as other preachers constantly did in his day. He rarely told stories about his life, but instead he illustrated the Bible with the Bible. He, he used church history as examples. He, he drove people into an understanding of deep theology. So his preaching was, and it was very important to him, doctrinal. His preaching was doctrinal, not entertaining. Writing for the Herald of Wales, one reporter wrote, quote, it's not the oratory of Dr. Lloyd-Jones which draws the crowds, but one of the attractions of the doctor's preaching is that his language is entirely his own. Not worn out phrase, not a platitude, not an age-old expression. He used the language not of the street, but of the average cultured man. It may be that his freedom from the language of the pulpit, the language inevitably fixed upon a student of theology who spends his youth and manhood immersed in its phraseology is one secret of his driving force. He didn't use terms like Calvinism when he would preach. He would preach the doctrines of grace, but did not want those terms to be used to categorize him into a corner. But continually, he just desired to bring out the meaning of the text so that the Bible's meaning was inexplicable. And just so you know, it was customary in those days for the doctor to wear a robe when he preached. Uh, in his speeches to Westminster Theolo Theological Seminary, it's a book called Preachers and Preaching, I've referred to it. He said that the seminarians there, he said, I believe it is good and right for a preacher to wear a gown in the pulpit. The gown to me is a sign of the call, a sign that the man has been set apart to do this work. It is no more than that, but it is that. End quote. <laughs> One man remembers in response to this that Dr. Jones, he says this, Lloyd-Jones had a fine violin-like voice. It was exquisite enough in its entreating. And there was one thrilling moment when, by the use of that magic which all great preachers of Wales possess, he called on the name of God with tremendous passion and opening wide his arms, he seemed like a great black bat swooping down over the congregation, end quote. How terrifying is that? That's one reason not to wear a robe. But he believed, robes and gowns aside, that the focus of the sermon was to unveil God. He said, quote, I can forgive a man for a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God, if he gives me something for my soul, if he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate in himself, he is handling something which is very great and glorious. If he gives me some glimpse of the majesty and glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, and the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, I am his debtor, and I am profoundly grateful to him." End quote. When he was at, again, Westminster Theological Seminary during those days, he asked the question, what is preaching? And he answered his own question with this, it is logic on fire. Eloquent reason. Are those contradictions? Of course they're not. Reason concerning this truth ought to be mightily eloquent, as you see it in the case of the Apostle Paul and others. It is theology on fire. 
And a theology which does not go on fire, I maintain, is a defective theology, or at least the man's understanding of it is defective. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire, end quote. He believed in something called unction. If you have ever read him before, you will know that. He mentions it many times in his preaching. What he means by unction is that the Holy Spirit falling upon the preacher in a special manner. This is what he said. It is an access of power. It is God giving power and enabling through the Spirit to the preacher in order that he may do this work in a manner that lifts it beyond just the efforts and endeavors of a man in a position which the preacher is used by Spirit and becomes a channel through whom the Spirit works. In other words, what he was saying was, the essence of the kind of preaching that he wanted to impart was the kind of preaching that is completely dependent upon God for its effect, that is completely dependent upon the Spirit of God to move the hearts. He, of course, that being said, believed that the preacher should be studied. He believed, of course, that he should be presenting his case before the people in an organized way. He believed the preacher must look at a text like a doctor. He looked at the implications. He would look at the history and the grammar, the context, the, the theology. Of course, all of that was behind it. He also believed in taking notes into the pulpit to guide his message. He didn't want to get off. He didn't want to veer off this text. He believed the sermon must have a sense of a musical symphony and have form. He writes this, a symphony always has form. It has its parts and portions. The divisions are clear, and they're recognized and can be described. And yet, a symphony is a whole. One should always think of a sermon as a construction, a work which is that way comparable to a symphony. In other words, a sermon is not a mere collection or series of excellent and true statements and remarks. What makes a sermon a sermon, and it has a particular form which differentiates it from everything else. The sermon, therefore, is always a work deliberately constructed through the pain and study and attention to detail to the text, but it's never to be academic. It was never to be dry, for it deals with eternal consequences. And the sermon deals with life and death matters that transcend, transcend any kind of presentation. And though he never brought forth a message to his people, either in Sandfield or Westminster Chapel, that contoured his objective due to any kind of felt wants or needs, he always said he was going to preach as a dying man to dying men, just like Richard Baxter had said. I preach as a dying man to dying men. He said this, and I loved it. You must never allow the patient to write the prescription. You must never allow the one who is sick to determine what medicine should make him well. It is the calling of the preacher to discover God's prescription and proclaim it in such a way that the patient sees his need and longs for the cure. He said, the purpose of biblical revelation of God's holiness is to teach us how to approach Him. It is not mere theological knowledge that we are asked to try to grasp for in our understandings. It is purpose is very practical. In the words of the author of the book of Hebrews, we are to approach God with reverence and godly fear. He is always to be approached in that way. Wherever you are, when you are alone in a room or when you are meeting as a family to pray or when you are in public service, God is always God and he is always to be approached with reverence and godly fear. Well, that is the cry of the doctor. So we've seen the childhood of Lloyd-Jones, the career of Lloyd-Jones, conversion, calling, churches and cry of Lloyd-Jones. Finally, Let's just look at the conclusion of Lloyd-Jones, the conclusion. Now, let me just say at this point, 
obviously, as we come to the conclusion of our look at the doctor's life, there is so much more about Martin Lloyd-Jones' life and ministry that's contained in Ian Murray's two volumes on his life. I've merely, barely even begun to scratch the surface of what made this man the man he is and was. You have to read him for yourself. You're going to have to listen to him with your own ears. And thankfully, because of MLJ Trust website, there's hundreds and hundreds of sermons available for you to hear Lloyd-Jones, even a couple of interviews if you've never seen him live, and actually one recording that he did where he was the host of a little video on the life of George Whitfield. If you watch that and see the doctor and listen to the doctor, it changes everything. There are conflicts in his life that I have not commented on, especially concerning ecumenicalism, just because of the time that we have. Uh, the second volume of uh, Ian Murray deals with most of that. There was a split between him and John Stott and J.I. Packer, and even though they respected each other immensely, but it was the doctor's conclusion, and I think rightly so, that people should not belong to a denomination that flirt between Reformed theology and Roman Catholic theology. He, he believed that the blurring of lines like that was very, very dangerous and naive, and not done for the purpose of to appeal to a, a false sense of unity and, and a, a false sense that the Bible never really addresses. Those issues were very real for him, very extensive, and it's really worth your time to read about because it still is relevant even today. You see, the doctor was always consistent. The man who preached in the pulpit is, is the same man who preached in the armchair, who spoke about matters of life that concern all of us because he was driven by the exposition he found in the Scripture and nothing else. And I had mentioned it before, but his writings about spiritual depression are very important uh, in our over-psychologicalized world in which we live, especially coming from a trained medical mind like his to understand the issue of spiritual depression. He saw the grand issues of depression, just so you know, for the most part, having to do with people listening to themselves instead of preaching to themselves. He actually said once, if you look at your past and are depressed, it means that you're listening to the devil. Again, a medical doctor at his stature coming to it and not psychologicalizing it, but looking at the spiritual origin of depression is very, very interesting and important. Because he was a doctor, he could diagnose it, see through them. He was brilliant and godly. And still, let me let you know here at the end, very, very human as well. Lloyd-Jones is very, very human. There's so many stories about him and his humanness and how he used to, hold your breath, smoke. Uh, 10 packs of, uh, sorry, 10 packs, 10 cigarettes a day. 10 packs, he would have been dead. Uh, <laughs> 10 cigarettes a day at one point in his life. Uh, it was before he knew about the dangers of smoking, obviously, in the world that we know. But regardless, he would smoke because he would think, and that's how he would reason. He would light a cigarette up, and he would think about different issues and diagnose and counseling or whatever the issue was. Well, one night, I read, he was reaching for a cigarette, as was his habit, because he was going to think through some deep issue, and he was out of cigarettes. And so uh, Bethan said that he spent almost an hour searching the house, trying to find if there were any cigarettes left because he needed a cigarette to be able to think. And as he left the house, he went to another friend's house and said, do you have any cigarettes? And he also happened to be out. And it was at this point that he decided and eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, he had an habit with smoking and he felt like it was not to the glory of God. And so every day he started to reduce his cigarette intake until finally he stopped smoking completely on his own because he believed that it was not 
glorifying to God that he would do so. So the doctor was human after all. He was also known to wear a suit and tie everywhere he went. I don't know if you know this, but even to the beach. He would holiday at the beach with a, a, a black bowler and, and he would have a, a black suit, white shirt, black tie, vest, pocket watch hanging there, shoes and socks. And he would be sitting in the sand, in the beach, uh, obviously a very warm experience for him. Uh, and additionally, few people knew about his humor, but when you listen to the interviews, especially on that uh, Logic on Fire documentary, uh, people knew in his family of his incredible uh, sense of humor. In the pulpit, he was never, ever going to be funny, and he was refused to make jokes in the pulpit. But outside the pulpit, he had a very infectious sense of humor. Uh, even his brothers, they said, were expert uh, punsters, so they liked to fool each other. Another story of his humanness I, I find amazing. I think this is the most amazing one. But he used to have his grandson sit on his lap taking his pocket watch out of the way so he could rest all the way back on his grandfather's belly. And he would laugh together with him as they watched, get this, professional wrestling together. I, it threw me too. Professional wrestling. The doctor would cheer, he, his grandson would say, for the bad guy and would howl as he was pinning him. So he used to have time with his grandson and enjoy what his grandson enjoyed, to have a connection with him and to love him and make their time together a delight by watching grown men in tights throw each other in the air. You would have never guessed it, nor had I. It was colon cancer that first struck him when he was 68 years old. Though he survived the surgery, it was the catalyst for his retirement at Westminster Chapel. He would continue to live another 13 years, preaching all over the United States, Europe, became a minister to ministers, focusing on gathering sermon materials together for future distribution. But he was, as he says here, grateful. I am grateful to God that I have been given, he says this time. I agree with Chalmers, absolutely. We do not give enough time to death and to our going on. It is a very strange thing, this. The one certainty, yet we do not think about it. We are too busy. We allow life and its circumstances to so occupy us that we do not stop and think. People say about sudden death, it's a wonderful way to go. I have come to the conclusion that this is quite wrong. I think the way we go out of this world is very important, and this is my great desire now that I may perhaps be enabled to bear a greater testimony than ever before. By February 25th, 1981, he knew the end was close. At one point, the last few days, his speech was gone, and he pointed to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18 which says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. His daughter Elizabeth asked him if that was his experience now, and he nodded his head with great force. On Thursday, February 26th, in a shaky hand, he wrote on a script of paper to his wife and to the family, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. Then on March 1st, 1981, by the merciful allowance of his great physician, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones entered the presence of his Lord and Savior with unspeakable joy. 
He once said, it is the grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study and to think through and to be once again exposed to the great teaching of Lloyd-Jones. Father, so many ways we see this example even in our own pastor, and we thank you for that, even to the point where, as you know, his grandson gave Pastor John the preaching table that was Lloyd-Jones's. We have such a connection to this man here. We feel so close to him because of our own pastor. We ask that you would create many Lloyd-Joneses here. We ask that through the seminary and through men who are not yet even in seminary but would desire to do that one day, that you would create in their hearts a passion for preaching. And we ask for the women here too that they would guide their sons. You give them opportunity to consider the great teachings of this man and to what it is to be a man so that they too would know what Lloyd-Jones represented, a man who sought for you with all his heart. We thank you for this time again. In Christ's name, amen.